Hi, my name is Kelsey Whipple, and I teach the UMass Journalism Department's Introduction to Radio and Podcasting class. Every semester, my students partner with WMUA News to create a series of radio packages that explore life and culture in the Pioneer Valley. For the past two semesters, we've examined how our careers and our priorities and our ways of living have struggled to respond and adapt to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been a heck of a year. And I'd be lying if I told you that I thought we'd still be discussing the local influence of this pandemic more than a year later, more than two years later. But one of the best parts of this ongoing project is the ability to reflect on many different aspects of what life in this part of Western Massachusetts really looks and sounds like. And this winter, that still looks a lot like trying our best to navigate life alongside a lingering global health crisis. In this winter series, UMass Journalism students highlight student life in this community during a time of evolving limitations and possibilities. I hope you'll enjoy their work. How long has it been since you've been to a bar? Make that a college bar. College students pressed up against each other leaning into strangers to facilitate conversation and introductions. There's music, there's dancing, and beer is being spilled onto the already sticky bar floor. A Friday night out at one of downtown Amherst bars looks a lot like that scene, only a few months since August 18th, the date the town of Amherst put a COVID-19 mask order into effect for restaurants, bars, and venues. The order says that people over the age of five are required to wear a face mask or covering in all indoor spaces open to the public. It also says that patrons don't have to wear masks when seated and eating or drinking. This exception is depicted as a hard and fast rule by acting Amherst Health Director Jennifer Brown, but many bargoers interpret this differently as they walk maskless through venues with drinks in their hands. According to Brown, the rule has one interpretation. She says in an email, Quote, patrons should be seated when they eat or drink. That is when masks are allowed to be off. If someone is standing with a drink and the mask is off, it means there may be movement from person to person, they may stand closer, and these things would be increased opportunities for transmission. Unquote. I visited a popular bar in Amherst called The Spoke to investigate what a night out in the college town really looks like at this point in time. It is 9.28 on Thursday, October 7th. I am standing outside of The Spoke, a bar in Amherst, and the line is currently around the corner, down the block, into the parking lot. It is about 10 p.m. when I arrive at the front of the line. The bouncer takes my ID and asks to see my face. It is 9.59. I am inside of the spoke. Every person I have seen has been walking around without a mask, standing room only. Patrons are spread out within spoke between three main spaces, the indoor bar space, adjoining DJ'd club, and outdoor patio area are all packed. The environment at the popular downtown bar gives predominantly student patrons an escape from masks, guidelines, and COVID-19 concerns or so they say themselves. 
University of Massachusetts Senior Operations and Information Management student Ryan Kroll frequents the bars each weekend. He says the COVID-19 protocols in place are sufficiently halting the spread of the virus. In the beginning weeks, the people who were going to get COVID got COVID. Kroll references the decrease in cases on the UMass COVID-19 dashboard as the reasoning behind his feeling of safety at the bars. At the time of Kroll's interview on October 7th, the dashboard showed the university having 21 positive cases of COVID-19. Kroll compares that number to the nearly 400 positive cases the university recorded in mid-September. So now cases are diving down, and it's because the people who are going to get it have got it, and now they're immune. I, I honestly don't think it's going to, like, break out again. Weekends for UMass junior biology student Liam James also often include trips to the spoke. James says he sees plenty of COVID-19 protocols for the duration of his evenings out. I take COVID very seriously. There's a lot of protocols. We had to wear a mask when we got in. We had to wear a mask when we ordered drinks. James's list peters out. The protocols he speaks of might be in place, but they're difficult to picture when observing the lack of masks, even on spoke bartenders and bouncers. UMass senior informatics student Dylan admittedly observes what he calls a lack of protocols at the bar. Dylan didn't provide his name for this story. I haven't been out in a while because of like COVID and all that. I had a couple scares, but right now I'm having a good time. So well, how do you feel about the COVID protocols? At the bars, it's pretty nuts. Like there's like no protocols here really. The town of Amherst's COVID-19 mask order is still in effect at the time this story airs. I reached out to managers and owners of four Amherst bars by email and phone to discuss their adherence to COVID-19 policies. I received no response from management contacts at any of the four bars. I asked Acting Health Director Jennifer Brown via email about the reality of pandemic protocol-related complaints. According to Brown, the first action taken by the department when people call to complain about a business's COVID-19 protocols is to speak with the business to find out more about their practices. Brown says the health department's priority is to educate and work with any business as opposed to what she calls, quote, slapping on a fine. Brown says the health department has not fined any venues as of October 21st because there has not been a need to. The health department has received less than five calls, and while they were all about Amherst bars, they were not all necessarily about breaks in protocol, she says. According to Brown, the town of Amherst wants to ensure the safety of the patrons and themselves and to keep businesses open and running. If a fine were to be placed upon a business, Brown says first offense penalties are $50, followed by $100 for second offenses and $200 for third offenses and beyond. For WMUA News, I'm Ella Adams. A quick Google search will show all the possible benefits the many species of mushrooms have to offer. From nutrition to medicine to sustainability efforts, these organisms have potential to solve real-world problems, like cleaning up oil spills and possibly treating things like anxiety, depression, even Alzheimer's disease. Willie Crosby is a local mushroom expert. He runs Fungi Ally, which is a mushroom cultivation and education business in Hadley. 
Crosby says he wants to get mushrooms into the hands of the community through workshops and at-home grow kits. Crosby, who wears glasses and has fingertips stained with soil, began pursuing mushroom farming after graduating in turf management at UMass Amherst. Yeah, I was on like a family vacation in Vermont and got my hands on Paul Stanton's book, um, My Seeing Running. Um, it was like one of those books that I just like pick up and was like, oh my god, you know, and um, read it all in a couple of days and then um, was like, I want to grow mushrooms. Crosby says he saw a gap in the farming market in Western Mass. I was like asking around and people were like, I don't know how to grow mushrooms. Like no one knew how to grow mushrooms, you know, and I was like, why doesn't anyone know how to grow mushrooms? They seem amazing and incredible and like poss possible to like bootstrap. Crosby and two friends started Fungi Ally in 2014, farming and selling gourmet mushrooms. But he says his main interest has shifted over the last few years to education. Yeah, I think the work is, is making it accessible, whether that's through information and education or through um, products. And mushrooms are so powerful and awesome allies for us. So getting people just understanding what fungi are and where mushrooms come from, now that that's like happening on a broader level, that's awesome to me. Fungi Ally sells at-home grow kits and offers workshops online and in person. I think it's great to bring like sensuality into exploring mushrooms and what they are, smelling them, touching them. Um, one of the things I like doing in my classes is just like giving people a mushroom being like, experience it. Like what is like, what is this thing? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How does it, you know, feel on your cheeks? A lot of times when I go foraging with some clients, it's like I'll go and I'll pick a mushroom and there's always that question like, is it okay to touch it? That's Anya Gabis. She's an herbalist from Springfield who attended a Fungi Ally workshop series in 2017. In one of the classes, Gabis learned how to grow oyster mushrooms at home using toilet paper rolls. Mushrooms do thrive on decomposing uh, wood material, so cardboard can count as that. Um, I remember stuffing the toilet paper rolls with wood chips, and that was part of the experience. They had this beautiful pile of wood chips that you could just like go over and dig your fingers through and spraying them with water and then like putting them in a plastic uh, Ziploc bag. And then we were instructed to take the Ziploc bag home and put it in our fridge. And then um, after a few weeks, take it out. And I remember it was just like this beautiful blossom of mushrooms coming off of something that would be considered waste. Gabbis says the classes were part of the reason why she decided to become an herbalist. I grew up in Springfield where there was a bit of limited green spaces. Um, and so fortunately I had the access to come up to Hadley. But Fungi Ally really broke down those uh, boundaries of not having access to green space by teaching people what they can do in their home. I talked to Ben Baldy. He's an agronomist and farmer who collaborates with Crosby. He traveled to Jamaica in September on behalf of Fungi Ally to teach farmers and community members mushroom cultivation through the USAID Farmer to Farmer program. The thing about Jamaica um, is you gotta remember that, you know, their indigenous populace is primarily wiped out. Um, and they were, you know, a slave, a slave colony. You know, the majority of the people there come from slaves and indentured servants. 
and uh, they don't have a lot of indigenous knowledge from that. But they wanted to know about like the fungus. They wanted to know about their role in the ecosystem. Baldi says there have been many aha moments in his workshops. I, I remember this one lady, she was just, she was blown away when we started talking about mycelium. Because she had seen it on a wood pile, you know, and she didn't, she didn't know what it was. And she had watched this slime mold move over to the top of the wood pile and then move down. Um, that's the sun changing. So that was cool. For WMUA News, I'm Elizabeth Beanland. People's Market has endured nothing like the past 18 months in its 47 years as a student business. Day-to-day operations at the market this semester look different than a year ago. A pandemic, loss of experienced staff members, and new location in the renovated student union forced the market into a period of rapid transition. And it's a uh, small, right? Yes. Actually. Students frequent the market to grab coffee or a bagel on their way to class and their loyalty makes the spot a hub and place of connection for the UMass community. Student co-managers run Peoples and share equal responsibility for its operation. The co-managers speak from behind the Peoples counter during the market's second day of operation. Junior Yumi Cruz worked at Peoples for just over a month before the March 2020 shutdown. She didn't know how severely her new job would be affected. We realized you were saying goodbye to a bunch of co-managers who were never coming back. The new location is modern, spacious, and lined with large windows but it lacks the character of people's original space. The student artwork and tapestries that line the walls are gone. Senior Mark Capizzi is one of two co-managers who worked at the original student union building three years ago. The old space definitely felt more lived in. It had so, so much history. When you walked in, you knew like, okay, I'm in people's market. The co-managers say it's difficult to work around the new student unions and forced rules and make the space feel like their own. Senior Alicia Prentice says procedures for taking out the trash, picking up deliveries, and decorating the new space restrict their autonomy. It feels like our voice is being shut down because we're not able to use our space the way that we would like to use the space. Senior Ernesto Brown sees the building's upper management shutting down students' ideas. We have a level of oversight that we have never had before, and I'm not saying that oversight is interest in our market. It is literal oversight in terms of asking about putting stuff on our walls, representing ourselves in our own space, which we have been told no, 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 no. Um, This was paid for by students. It is our space, and they are condemning it and making it into a space that is only for representing the university to outside powers, not even outside prospective students. It's ridiculous. It's 575. Reopening is difficult, but the co-managers are excited to rebuild the market's culture this semester. Senior Barka Bandari worked her first ever shift at the new location on October 4th. Basically, this space is for students, first and foremost. I think creating that energy here in this new space is something I really look forward to. Two years worth of People's Market customers and co-managers graduated since the shutdown began in March 2020. Student familiarity with the business presents another hurdle, but Cruz is hoping to attract a new generation of regulars by advertising to freshmen and sophomores. I feel like it'd be exciting to like basically have two new classes of people to bring into this space and hopefully they keep coming here for like the rest of the day last. Freshman Piper Norton wasted no time familiarizing herself with People's Market. She went on opening day on October 1st after her older sister recommended it. As a UMass senior, her sister remembers enjoying the culture of the old location. 
she's like me and my friends used to go in there all the time and it's like the best vibes in there like it's so fun and she's like you can like make your own bagel and get coffee or whatever and i was like "Ooh, that sounds good norton enjoyed an iced coffee and a wild cheddar bagel people's market needs to hire additional co-managers to rebuild its existing staff of eight people and serve more customers like norton students can apply to be a co-manager next semester the application can be found in the people's market instagram bio at People's Market 73. And new customers can take advantage of the staff's bagel recommendations. Wild cheddar with chive cream cheese. So I love snickerdoodle, blueberry, I love honey walnut, I love um, sun butter. Wild cheddar bagel with veggie cream cheese. I like a pumpernickel bagel with chive cream cheese. Everything with veggie cream cheese. People's Market is open Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m and on Fridays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. For WMUA News, I'm Katherine Hurley. Ten-year-old Jarena Lamonte reacts to Mike's maze with a big-eyed, wide-mouthed, elated expression before saying that this is the best place ever. Mike's maze is a corn maze from the ground and an art piece from the sky. Ever since 2000, a Sunderland farm cuts an eight-acre cornfield into a picture or word, then places activities and trivia questions that relate to the themes of the image throughout the maze. Lamonte has ventured into Mike's maze with her grandparents, parents, and three-year-old sister for the third year in a row. She loves the maze as an autumn time opportunity to be with her family, and she thinks her friends in the area would enjoy it as much as she does. Usually it's just my family. I mean, like I said, my grandmother, which I call my Mamo, she has neighbors, six kids, all girls. Um, it goes three to 14. And if they could come here with me, it would probably be a great thing. Maze curators and organizers, David and Jess Weissman, chose the 50th anniversary of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's song Imagine as the basis of this year's maze theme. They carved the word Imagine in a 70s style cursive font into the corn. The theme expanded from the song itself to the idea of imagination in general. The goal is very much to encourage, you know, everyone to kind of reach back and find that imagination out of the kid. The maze pulls people into Weissman's own version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood of Make Believe. Various imagination stations within the maze require creative and innovation skills to complete their tasks. Maze-goers who visit these stations discover a cryptic monster, communicate with aliens, and design an original invention. It definitely gets trickier in like, I don't think last year they had like a wheel, like you spin the big one and then you spin the little one and you have to like come up with a way that, like I have to figure out a way that I crack an egg and fold laundry. One of the trivia questions asks about the Academy Award-nominated score from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Another station uses colorful animals from Eric Carle's book, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See?, as inspiration for describing colors with taste, smell, touch, and sound. I think the thing that we always try and encourage, um, you know, when we end up with even, you know, like teenagers and college kids and even just groups of adults, um, is we very much try and encourage people to 
you know, just lean into the silliness and lean into the fun. Farmer and father of David Weissman, Mike Weissman, and artist Will Sillen talked about creating a corn maze at their friend's Christmas party, and the following autumn stamped out a Massachusetts state quarter with a plow and GPS. The maze has improved since then through a new grid system for cutting out the maze's design and the addition of activities in and outside of the maze. David Weissman and wife Jess Marsh Weissman took over management in 2014 after Sillin retired from the maze. Artist Jess Weissman designs the maze and the various decorations, like the large rainbow entryway sign at the front of the maze that says, Enter Your Imagination. David Weissman curates the trivia questions and activities. The inspiration for the theme ranges from local events to big anniversaries. Last year's voting-themed maze corresponded with the 2020 election, and Weissman and his wife worried that the theme would be too serious and complex for kids. They were pleasantly shocked when the questions related to the theme sparked insightful conversations. Which were like, oh my god, there's like grandparents having conversations with their kids over whether or not felons should be able to vote. It's like. This is kind of unbelievable that there's like four-year-olds thinking about these things. The corn maze attracts teenagers, college students, and couples, as well as families. Rainy Gonzalez and Nicholas Russingas began dating in June 2020 and hadn't been able to meet up in person for the first four months of their relationship due to the pandemic. One of their earliest dates was at Mike's Maze. Doing something like this was like an opportunity for us to be outside. Um, you know, getting to know each other in the corn maze, we're walking around. It also kind of emphasizes collaboration. We're both trying to reach a goal. We're trying to figure out questions and answers. And I don't know, it's a fun time. Lamonte says her favorite imagination station is the monster station, which she did while her little sister ran around the maze. She hasn't named her animal with leopard spots, crocodile teeth, and a fishtail, but her drawing is as full of imagination as John Lennon and Yoko Ono wish the future could be. From WMUA News, I'm Emily Klein.